Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. This is Episode 8. Today, we're talking to Stephanie Letourneau. Stephanie is an elementary school teacher who works hard to help her third grade students, those with ADHD and those without, break down tasks, manage their emotions, and feel included in her classroom. In today's episode, we discuss the many transitions kids face in school, both year-to-year and activity-to-activity. We discuss the challenging shift that happens from second to third grade. This type of shift also happens between third and fourth grade and during the transitions from elementary school to middle school, middle school to high school, and from high school to college or the workforce. So, although the strategies Stephanie shares come from the perspective of a third grade classroom, they can certainly be adapted across grade and age levels and used both in school and at home. All right, let's get rolling. My third year in third grade, 14 years in second grade. Wow, 14 years in second grade and then three in third. Mm -hmm. And those are sort of some of the prime ADHD years. Things start to change in school a little bit and academics get a little more impressive. Especially in third. Yeah, especially in third. I can see that. As a teacher, you've made the transition from second grade to third grade. Mm -hmm. I know that for students, that's a big jump. Right. So what's it like from the teacher end to make that same transition? It was as difficult probably as it was for the kids. The curriculum and planning was definitely much different, but it's so much more enjoyable for me. I actually really enjoy third grade much better than second grade because they tend to be more independent. So it's actually been a really good, a good transition, one that I was scared of, (laughs) but it turned out to be for the best. Are they more independent because of the nature of second grade versus the nature of third grade or because they're just more mature developmentally and more capable of handling it? I think a combination of both. I think that third grade teachers expect that out of them where second grade teachers are more kind of cuddly and warm and fuzzy. I'm warm and fuzzy still, but I, we also have different expectations, largely because of state testing is probably why. Okay, so state testing is steering this sudden jump in independence. I think so, yeah. Because state testing happens at third grade? It starts in third grade, doesn't happen in second. So in my experience, I felt a lot of, um, I thought I felt a lot less stress in second grade because I didn't have that test looming over me. And that's why I didn't want to move to third. I kept thinking, oh man, I'm, I'm going to have these kids have terrible scores. I'm going to lose my job. I had all those fears, but um, it's actually different, like I said, because they are more, more impen- independent that it's actually less stress for me. Okay. I would go visit second grade classrooms and, and half of the kids are up out of their seats tapping on their teachers. Help, help, tap, 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 tap. And I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> I remember those days. <laughs> in third grade, you don't get as many taps on the shoulder needing help as you did in second grade? No, most kids attempt on their own at first or at, will ask a friend for help first, which is really um, ideal because 
we're trying to go around and help everybody. And it's good if they can start the strategies with their friends before the tap. How does this jump from second grade to third grade affect your ADHD students? I think it becomes clearer in the eyes of the teacher and in their classmates because because there is that jump in independence. There are kids that definitely need more direction and it might not have gone as noticed in second grade because it's typical for kids to be up and about all the time or going from center to center. Third grade, it's definitely a lot different. It's, it's not learning to read, it's reading to learn. It's more obvious who needs additional assistance, which is good. That's a big shift right there that you mentioned, right? And this is a shift that many parents are probably not aware of, which is that shift from learning to read to reading to learn. That's a big transition for kids. And not only is that a transition, that whole concept of learning to read, now reading to learn, but also the fact that it wasn't that long ago that fourth grade was the year when kids made the transition from learning to read to reading to learn. So that's backed up. Yes, everything is backed up a year. Interesting enough, like the way that our school is set up, the first and second grade are on one floor and then the third and fourth grade are on the floor above. So they're kind of lumped in together. And I, even as a second grade teacher, I remember saying things like, oh, when you get upstairs, it's going to be different. Um, so mm -hmm. I think that, you know, even as first and second grade teachers, we tell them, watch out, it's going to be different when you go upstairs. It's like, you know, upstairs is a whole different world. This is another question that I have around that transition, because my boys my boys just made this transition. Mm -hmm. They're in third grade right now. It was a hard one for us. I can't help but wonder why there's a disconnect or a seeming disconnect. There might not actually be one. But it's, it's striking to me the difference in the expectations between second and third grade. Yeah. And I'm curious as to why that exists. Why is it such a big jump? from second to third, I think we see a huge jump because they're starting the state testing. And is there anything, obviously you can only speak to your school, and I'm thinking not just your school, but your state, the nation, because this shift happens everywhere. Um, how do we ease that for kids? Like can second grade kind of up stuff a little bit towards the end? And can third grade kind of downshift a little bit at the beginning? Is that a possibility? I think that's kind of what we do. Yeah. You know, by the end of second grade, they are taught to be better prepared, but you're losing those couple of months in between. So even if they kind of were getting there, there's little growth, sometimes regression over summertime. So when September rolls around, you really do need to start back at the beginning. Okay. I have an amazing class. They, um, I start off slow all the time. I always tell them baby steps. Sometimes I'll call it even smash the task. You take a big task and you break it up into little pieces. Awesome. Starting third grade, because it has been so different from second grade, I move at a snail's pace. Even though I know that there's so much to cover, I figure if I take my time and get them into the groove in a slow way without the pressure, that it'll save me time in the end because they're not going to stress out along the way. That's kind of my goal has been baby steps. And I tell them too, this isn't how it's going to you know, be that the expectations will increase, but just so that they feel comfortable going one step at a time. Mostly in, um, well, actually I was going to say mostly in reading and writing, but definitely in math too. In all academic areas, just going slow. You'll cover more going slower, if that makes any sense. That does. That makes a lot of sense. You end up reteaching. If you try to get through everything really quickly, 
they're not getting it, teacher gets frustrated, kids get upset, you end up reteaching and you lose a week's worth of teaching time. I want to swing back to that smash the task really quick because that's that's an area that people with ADHD and kids especially with ADHD struggle with a lot. Yeah. Is breaking big tasks down into smaller chunks. Sure. So how how do you go about helping kids do that? That I do whole class doesn't matter. It's good teaching in third grade as it is because they don't have those skills yet. Mm-hmm. Basically what I like to do is give them an idea of the full picture and then make a list. Sometimes they have a copy of that list. Sometimes it's on the board. Sometimes it's just verbal. So not to overwhelm them. This is all you need to do right now. This is your job right now, rather than giving them a list of tasks all at once, breaking it down, taking it and smashing it. So you're starting with the end in mind. Yes. And they, they know the end in mind. Sometimes you've given them all of the steps to get to that end. And sometimes you're like, this is where we're heading. But right now you're only doing these two things. Right. And then we're going to do two more things later and maybe two more things again. And eventually we're going to get to this end point. And in some cases, like for example, um, if they're doing some writing, like right now they're writing nonfiction books, some kids will be ready for the next task before others. And that's okay. You just set them off on their next task while the other kids are finishing the task that they're working on. It is um, sometimes an organizational nightmare for teachers. When, when everybody's on a different task, but it's really difficult to keep everybody at the same pace because my assignment right now, they have to write five chapters. Some kids want to write 12. They're writing nonfiction with a table of contents, a glossary, and five headings. So they have five paragraphs, essentially. And those five paragraphs are your five chapters. Exactly. So giving them one task at a time and giving them clear instructions on how to do that task But if I try to keep everybody at the same pace, that affects everybody, not just the kids with uh, ADHD, but the kids that want to write 12 chapters. They don't go on. I'm not ready yet. I I have more to say. (laughs) I can see two kids who both have ADHD in your classroom, right? I can imagine these two kids and one of them is done and the other one hasn't started yet. (laughs) Yes, you're absolutely right, which is also good for them to be on different parts because Um, That allows you, not everybody needs your help at the exact same time. It allows me to help the one that says they're done to show them how to research. You know, let's go back and find more details. Let's look up some things online. And the kid that hasn't gotten motivated yet to pick a topic, give him a bin of nonfiction books and say, take a look through these, see if anything interests you. So they're not doing the same thing, but they don't need you all at the same time. At the same time or in the same way. In the same way, right. There's a lot in there that is really awesome. One of the things that I'll be doing as we talk is trying to translate some stuff for the listeners. They don't necessarily understand education and how it works. <laughs> so I try to pull stuff out and be like, this is the tip that is hiding inside this story. Right. Inside of those two different strategies, right? For those two different kids, the one who's done, except that he's not really done. And the one who hasn't started are really good strategies for the parents at home. Right. Because one, the kid who flies through the task having them revisit and look at things a little more detailed is is really important but also just the way and and our listeners can't see your body language but the way that your body language when you said that you would talk to that kid and ask them to go and look at more details very clearly indicated to me that you would do that in a calm relaxed way oh yeah there was no tension no <laughs> and that's important for parents because when you when the kid says, my room is clean, and you go up there and you're like, no, this isn't clean. 
And you have to be a little calm about that. You have to be like, I hear you that you feel like this is clean, but all of the stuff is just under your bed. And I can see it. So that doesn't count as clean. Right. One thing that we always talk about specifically in writing is that writing is never done, um, that you could always add on to it and make it better. We do do a lot of strategies on where to go when you think that you're done. But what I was thinking when you were talking was um, teachers usually have a line at their desk during writing, Mm -hmm. right? Having them all at different places kind of eliminates that line. You can go around and travel to the children as they need you, but there's nothing more frustrating than that never-ending line as a teacher because they do all need you, you know, for different things. But for nonfiction in particular, um, they all pick their own topic, so they're invested in this. Like some kids picked um, like guinea pigs because they have them as pets. Some kids picked gymnastics. And then a couple of kids that I, I noticed picked similar topics, and it worked out really well because they needed each other, and they didn't even know it, to talk to. A lot about writing is just talking out the information that you know. Because that's all writing is. Writing is just thinking put down on a piece of paper. Right. And talking is thinking spoken out loud. So it's just a conversation regardless. Yeah, they think it's funny when I say, okay, now I want you guys to talk to each other and tell them your story. Well, we haven't written anything yet. I know. What do you have to say? Especially if they're working on the same topic, it's really cool because then they'll say, oh yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Or, you know, they'll be able to take notes or it's pretty interesting to see them communicate about topics like guinea pigs. Just having them pick their own topics Because that's a really broad swath you just painted, right? Everything from guinea pigs to gymnastics. That's a big spread. To YouTube and slime. I mean, as long as it was nonfiction and they had sources, I didn't care what they chose. And that's awesome because with ADHD, having engagement, being interested in, in what you're doing really helps with the motivation. It helps get the dopamine in the brain flowing and makes you want to achieve and makes you want to do stuff. So having such a wide spread of choices is really great. I can also see that kid who's stuck and is like, I don't know. There's too many choices. I'm overwhelmed by the choice. But giving him those books, like you said earlier about the kid who hasn't started yet, that ADHD kid, you give him some books and you've probably selected books that you think he might like. And there's probably a few random ones in there just to see. But now you've narrowed those choices because now he's got six or eight books and it's not the whole world anymore. You put some boundaries on it. You make such a good point because some kids flourish when they get to choose. And I wasn't a kid like that. I needed directions. I needed you to tell me what you wanted me to write about. What exactly should it say? That's what I needed as a kid. So thinking about those kids during this is definitely also on my radar because I was a kid that needed specifics. They get to choose their own headings because all the topics are so different. I couldn't possibly tell them what they needed to include. Mm -hmm. So I, I do understand about how difficult it can be to make a choice Sometimes you just want the teacher to make the choice for you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that continues. At home, they just want mom and dad to make the choice for them. And I couldn't decide on a college. Uh I applied to two colleges. And one was Bridgewater State in Massachusetts. And the other one was UMass Amherst. And I picked them because my sisters both went to Bridgewater. And my best friend was going to UMass. (laughs) Okay, that's fine. Those two work. I just needed a frame. That's how I am too. I don't need a frame as much anymore, but I still kind of do. I still need that little bit of, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, help me figure out what I'm doing. Give me a frame and then we'll move forward from there. Right. That's a huge thing to acknowledge that there are so many different learning styles. Just being aware of that 
is half the battle, really. And ADHD is among them. Right. The needs that kids with ADHD have are really pretty significant and, and not, not always debilitating, sometimes debilitating. And other times it just makes things a little bit harder. Yeah. What structures do you have in your classroom to help kids with ADHD? I do find a lot of the strategies for students with ADHD um, are good teaching for all third graders mm-hmm. or good strategies for all third graders. But something that I've started the past couple of years has been, first of all, starting the day off slow and welcoming the students in rather than my usual, all right, get to work. Come on in. We've got business to do. That's how it typically was. Like I ran it like an office and that's, that was a very stressful way to start the day. Mm-hmm. A more calm approach has definitely started the day off on the right foot. Along those lines, I've also spent a great deal of time teaching about emotions, about feelings, how to notice when you're feeling overwhelmed, how to notice when you're feeling anxious. That's one of the curriculum. I decided that I had to teach that and that it would, I'd get to the other stuff more efficiently if I taught them some skills first. Uh, I taught them body language. I taught them empathy. And and this is all social emotional work. All social emotional. And that's, I mean, that's my wheelhouse. I run workshops on social emotional learning now, um, in addition to the ADHD stuff. And I love, I love that you made that connection because I was going to, I was going to dig around a little bit and, and push that, but I didn't have to, you went right there. <laughs> that, yeah. that slowing down the morning is not about academics. It's about getting the emotions in line so that kids are ready to work and to learn for the rest of the day. And that, that's awesome. Well, similarly, after they have their lunch breaks and recess, they come in and um, in the very beginning of the school year for the entire month of September, we did 10 minute long guided meditations when they returned. Nice. Um, and, it, and the reason why it took so long was because they needed to be taught how to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the kids just thought it was cool to come in and take their shoes off and they'd giggle a, a lot in the beginning. And some kids, they didn't feel comfortable doing it. I never forced them. They could draw or read a book or just sit and breathe. And I taught them things like spaghetti toes. I don't know if you're familiar with. I am. <laughs> I taught them those types of things and um, I got some great feedback. It only takes us about like maybe three to five minutes now. Mm-hmm. I don't need quite as long because now they know how to do it. Can you walk us through what Spaghetti Toes is? Oh yeah, the kids love it. It's actually, I found it on YouTube and it's basically teaches your students that your body can feel like stiff spaghetti before it's cooked. And that when it feels like that, you wanna make your stiff spaghetti body feel loose like cooked spaghetti on a plate. Mm-hmm. So it gives some imagery and, it, and they can relate to the spaghetti because they know what uncooked spaghetti feels like. And they go through each part of the body, telling them to squeeze it and release it and imagine their body, you know, that part of the body lying loose like cooked spaghetti. Mm-hmm. A lot of positive feedback. The students have done it at home and I've gotten photographs from parents <laughs> with, with uh, captions, spaghetti toes at home, spaghetti toes at work, spaghetti toes with his brother. They do do it. And I know that they do it during the school day when they have moments when they need to do it. Our OT has come in and spoken to us about different strategies when you need to move your body, but you don't want to get out of your seat, you know, just squeezing certain parts of your body and releasing. They get a lot of support and encouragement to try different techniques to help them calm, help them focus. I always say to them afterwards, okay, are our brains ready to work now? 
because that's when we go right into math, which is the most complicated time of the day for just about all of us, myself included. So make sure that their brains are ready, that they're on, and nothing's bothering them. If they had a fight with somebody outside at recess, they usually have forgotten it by now, and they're ready to work. You're putting a lot of work into helping the kids transition. Correct. That morning time, slower mornings, that's transitioning from home to school. Correct. You're providing this guided meditation when they get back from lunch to help them transition from the chaos of lunch and recess and whatever social stuff might have happened there that may or may not have been good into math. Yes, it's usually not good. And um, there's always fights of some sort happening, especially with the girls and there's some drama. This gives them a chance to let that go. Mm -hmm. If I tried to do math right after that, I, I, I can't imagine what it would be like. It would be a nightmare. So it's good for all of us. And I do it with them. Uh, most of the time I do, I, I'll sit there with them unless I'm the one speaking, but I like to do them on YouTube if possible. Or we sit in silence sometimes and I just put on ocean waves or some sort of relaxing uh, sound in the dark. I want to go back to your very true statement. The strategies that work for kids with ADHD are primarily just good teaching strategies for third grade. Right. Again, there's a few different things happening there. ADHD is a developmental disorder. Third grade is one of those times where that gap in development between kids who are the same age, some of whom have ADHD and some of whom do not, begins to become obvious and begins to rear its head. But those strategies as a teacher still apply to both of those kids. Right. Also, the nature of ADHD is that um, the nature of ADHD is that it's very easy to say that everybody has ADHD because so much of the challenges that ADHD provides someone that ADHD causes are really the challenges of the modern age. Mm -hmm. It's challenges around attention. It's challenges around energy management. It's challenges around making effective use of your time. Lots of people struggle with those challenges, but for folks with ADHD, it's that much worse. Right. My typical example of this, and listeners will, already, will have already heard it, is asthma. I have asthma, right? So if you and I went running around the block and then came back in, we would probably both be winded, but if I don't get my inhaler, I could die. Right. You're not going to have the same problem. But if we both use my inhaler, we'll both benefit from it because it's going to open up both of our lungs. It's going to make it easier for both of us to breathe. So the interventions can apply to anybody, that intervention of an inhaler. Right. But for some people, oh. you have to have it. And for some people, if you have it, that's nice, but it's not the end of the world if you don't get it. And so that's those teaching strategies. I like that. I like that metaphor. I'm totally using that at school with my friends. It's <laughs> a good one. <laughs> Thank you. So a lot of the strategies, like you said, that when I taught second grade, third grade teachers used to come down to me and say, why didn't you identify this kid? And we used to get so upset because these kids have come so far. You didn't see where they came. And how far they've gone. But now that I'm a third grade teacher, I understand why third grade teachers felt that way because that is the year you really do identify students with ADHD or other, other learning disabilities. Um, that's when they, it really starts to show. And I remember getting so frustrated, like, why, what, what do you mean they've come so far? It's just the timing. It's the timing. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't really get that until I went from second to third grade. Backing up to something you mentioned earlier, regression also matters in this example, right? Yeah. Kids with ADHD are more likely to regress further than kids who don't have ADHD. Right. And also, you plant potatoes, you get potatoes, 
kids with ADHD often have parents who have ADHD. Oh, right. Yes. And the ADHD house is going to be less organized. It's going to be less structured. There's going to be less reinforcement of the lessons that were learned at school, even if they have every intention of spending the whole summer reinforcing those lessons. It's still not going to happen as regularly as another house that may have the same intention, but more organization. So we're going to find more regression with a kid with ADHD. Right. Yeah. Keeping that in mind. Strategies. One of my favorite things is just making sure their brains are ready for the task that we're doing. They don't switch classes like they do. Um, you know, in fourth grade, they start switching classes, right? Mm-hmm. But you're with them all day and we want them to do eight different subjects um, between grammar and phonics and reading and writing and math, science, social skills. You know, there's just so much. It doesn't have to be a long period of time. It could be just a minute, but making sure they understand that you're transitioning from this task, this is over. You no longer need these materials. We're now going to this task. You need these materials. Mm-hmm. You have to make it clear when you're transitioning from subject to subject. For parents at home, transitioning from one place to another. Right. And it can be going from home to school or in the task concept, that can be giving the kid time to transition from let's say, playing on his iPad to cleaning his room. They're willing to do it. You just have to give them the time to make that shift. And tell them the tools (laughs) that they may or may not need for that task. Right, yeah. That's probably one of my biggest things that I'm doing this year. Also, along with, you know, stretching, brain breaks, getting the kids up. There's a lot of talk about alternative seating. That's like a huge thing Mm -hmm. right now. What is that? (laughs) Alternative seating could be where kids could sit on the floor, on a stool, on a bouncy ball, on a wobble stool, <laughs> in their chair, on a couch, in a recliner. I mean, that's awesome. There's so many different things. So, so real quick side story. Yeah. Probably 10 years ago, I was at a job interview for a teaching position as an English teacher at the middle school level mm-hmm. and brought up alternative seating. Because I I was moving. So I mentioned that in my previous job, one of the things I let the kids do was when we were reading, I had some pillows that I'd let them sit on on the floor instead of at their desk. So this is 10 years ago. This is way before the transition to alternative seating happened. The vice principal thought it was a great idea. And I lost the principal. The principal was like, what? Not on board. (laughs) Yeah. And I did not get that job. (laughs) They were not on board. (laughs) So it's interesting to me that that's now a thing. (laughs) <laughs> oh, sure. Like for, I'd say for about five years now, we've um, tried to incorporate some things into our classrooms. The kids in my class have desks with their things inside their desk, but they know that there are certain times of the day, especially math, mm-hmm. where, yeah, you can get up. I have these little rocker seats. A lot of them like to grab a rocker or a beanbag and sit right in front of the projector where I work the math problems out. If you need to come nice and close, come nice and close. Some will come to a table. Some sit on the floor with a clipboard whatever. But you know what? You're always going to get five, six kids that don't want to leave their desk. Mm -hmm. So it's not for everybody. And so when I see, you know, all these Pinterest classrooms where they totally eliminate desks, well, that's not fair to the kids that actually like the desks. Right. You've got to give them the option to still be at their seat if that's where they choose. Yeah. If you can teach them how to appropriately use them, you know, you have to give them the expectations on how to use it so that they're not fighting over the same types of, I wanted a rocker while well, I wanted a beanbag. If you can have some sort of system in place or discussion about 
when it's appropriate to use it. And it really turns out to be everyone finds what's most comfortable for them. And it really doesn't turn into a fight. They know how they like to sit and p people are pretty respectful of um, where everybody wants to be. There's, usually, there's really no fights at this point. They just want to sit where they see best, do best, work best. Um, a lot of the ADHD kids do like the rockers. They love the rocking motion. I have one child that tends to fall asleep a lot. That rocking motion is great for him. Keeps him awake. Yep, keeps him awake. I also have a seat that has bicycle pedals underneath. Sometimes he doesn't want to, but I say, why don't you go do your math on the bike? And he'll actually do his math while pedaling. I want to go back to brain breaks because I'm confident that some of the people listening to this podcast went, what's a brain break? And then we flew right by it. <laughs> right. Because there's other good stuff too. But so what is a brain break? What, is that, what does that do in your classroom? There's so many ways you can do it. A lot of teachers use the Go Noodle site. I just have a list and I look at what I want to do, but it could be five jumping jacks. It could be, you know, touching your toes. It could be a silly dance. It could just be walking around the classroom. It's whatever it is that gets the body moving and gets your brain stop thinking about whatever it was that it was thinking about before. Mm -hmm. We do it, you know, I try to do it every 30 minutes or so, or whenever I see the kids uh, not falling asleep, what's the word? I'm, I'm losing them. Right, yeah. If I'm losing them, I stop and take a break. And that, like I said, usually involves some sort of stretching. I do do some yoga moves in there sometimes. Uh, a little happy baby sometimes when they, you know, they got to rock on their backs. They tend to like that. Sometimes you have to stop and realize that what you're doing isn't getting through to them and they need a break. Absolutely. And that's, um, there's sort of those two teacher impulses, right? There's the one where you're like, oh, I'm losing them. I better push harder. Right. And then there's the one that's like, oh, I'm losing them. Let me kind of pull back and try something different. And this is a really good, something different is, all right, I'm losing you and that's okay. Let's get up. Let's do some jumping jacks. Let's get up and do a yoga pose. One of my, uh, my friends in second grade, we used to be next door to each other and we used to always joke and go, abort, abort, because sometimes it just <laughs> didn't work. And so sometimes you have to abort the mission <laughs> yep. or just take a break and keep on going afterwards. It's okay to stop. My personal philosophy my grandmother recently passed away, and she had this saying that was very popular to her, a stitch in time saves nine. And I thought about that a lot as a kid, realizing that it doesn't just mean in sewing. So yes, you could stitch up that hole, and you'll save nine stitches after the hole gets bigger. But to me, it has a lot to do with my teaching practice. And I'm sorry about your grandmother, by the way. That's, thank you. But she did leave me with some great... Um, great knowledge that I didn't realize would uh, impact my teaching anyway. Yeah. How do you apply that? To okay. Your so yeah. Time on learning. That's a huge thing, right? When I first started the meditating, if someone came in and saw that I was supposed to be doing science and this is what I was doing, my response would be a stitch in time saves nine. I understand that this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing right now, but I'm not going to have as many behavior issues. I'm not going to have as many attention issues. I'm going to have a class that loves me and that love each other, that trust each other. We're going to be doing a lot of learning together this year, probably more so than if I didn't do this now. I think of it, a stitch in time saves nine. It's worth putting the time in because you're going to get more out in the end. Because that emotional stuff, which is what all of that's doing, is addressing emotion, underlying emotions. Right. And 
emotions beat academics every time. If, sure. if we're not emotionally balanced, if those kids aren't emotionally balanced, they're not going to learn and they're not going to produce the things that we're hoping for them to produce. So I think it's great that you're doing that. There was a YouTube video with this woman that said she lied to her kids every year and said that they were placed together, that they were handpicked. You were placed in my room because you are the best and I am the best and they wanted you to be with me. I do it every year. Nice. Every year. The kids eat it up. I had a parent ask me, is that true? The kid was in the room. So I'm going, you know, I'm saying yes, and I'm trying to nod. No, I lied to them. <laughs> my goal for your children is happy, healthy, and safe. If they feel happy, if they're healthy and they're safe, learning will occur. Mm -hmm. That's my main goal. Learning is bound to happen if, as long as they've got those main things. It's always happy, healthy, safe, and kind. I like to add the kind in there recently because I think that makes a better environment. So given that we're talking about ADHD, mm -hmm. happy, ADHD is comorbid with anxiety and depression, mm -hmm. healthy, mental health matters. We, we've got ADHD. We have some comorbidities. Safe, mm -hmm. the ADHD brain likes its stimulation. Sometimes that involves risk. Sometimes that involves disrupting the class. Kind, Sometimes ADHD involves impulsivity. Sometimes it's interrupting the class and being rude and those kinds of things. So how are you managing the ADHD kids in your room to help reinforce your four core concepts? I think that when, you know how you said ADHD kids sometimes aren't kind, but sometimes your typical kids are not kind to the ADHD kids because they might find them strange or odd. Good point. And we do know that ADHD kids are more likely to be bullied than kids who are neurotypical. Right. So um, the kindness, respecting um, each other's differences is definitely huge because like I said, I like it to be a room of acceptance where people, where they feel safe. Like I said too, I, I mean, really I'm doing this for everybody and I know that it's beneficial for the ADHD kids, but it's also, it's also good for the kids that are in foster care. It's good for the kids you know, my kids are, are from um, a divorce. My daughters have two homes. Mm -hmm. A lot of kids are like that also. Some kids are homeless. Mm -hmm. um, the environment that I create is inclusive for everybody. And I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, everybody is getting what they need. And I know, I know specifically that for the ADHD kids, that they're getting what they need because well, you've taught me a whole lot about what to do and I've already <laughs> used a lot of your strategies and I'm learning about the other types of kids along the way because those are, those are newer to me. Right. I've been dealing with ADHD kids since I started teaching. The wall of awful applies to all of them, by the way. It does. Sure, it does. Absolutely. So in creating, because you mentioned that you, you create an inclusive environment. Right. And that's really where, what I was trying to attack with my earlier question. How do you do that? What are the things that you're doing to create that inclusive environment? Okay. Well, like I said, it's direct instruction in third grade. Mm -hmm. You can't just assume that they're going to pick up on it. I, it has to be direct instruction. So a good part of my day for the first month of school was empathy, um, was celebrating differences, friendship activities. One of the favorite things the kids did, every kid had a clipboard with their name on it. And we sat in a circle and with our with our different color markers, we, we passed the clipboards around and wrote something nice about every kid on that piece of paper. 
And at that point, not everybody knew each other very, very well. And no, not everybody was the best of friends. So they really had to take time and think about what they were going to write on that paper. It took forever. I mean, I had 20 kids and it took forever. I also sat in, I had my own paper and I have a, uh, an aide in my classroom. She sat in, she had her own paper. And at the end, I, I collected them all. I laminated them. We have 21, 22 compliments on that paper. You know what would be cool would be to redo that again. Now that they know each other better. Because you can do a couple of different things with it. You can point out that now they're more specific, the compliments, or now they're a little bit different or what those changes are. And the other thing you could probably point out is that it didn't take as much time. Yeah, that's true. And what does that mean about how close we are and how well we got to know each other over the course of this year and all that stuff? Yeah, that's, that's actually a really good point. Part of the reason why it took so long, though, the organization of pass to your right. Mm-hmm. Pass it to your right. <laughs> I but mean, that... Even that <laughs> counts. <laughs> you can add in that now look, look at how much easier we follow directions or how much uh, better we are at understanding what Mrs. Letourneau is saying. <laughs> absolutely. I like that. We'll have to try that again. But, you know, some of the kids, they took them home because they wanted them you know, some of them hung them in their bedrooms or nice. kept them someplace. A lot of the kids, when we go through cleaning our desks as often as we do, they keep them in there mm-hmm. and they look at that. And, and I think that, you know, I don't think that they necessarily know that they're thinking like, this is a good place to be. Yeah. Creating that environment, celebrating the differences that we have. The way that I talk to them, if they do get in a disagreement, I thought that you two were friends and trying to get them to realize that we're kind of all in this together, Mm -hmm. which is how I deal with my own daughters. Since it's just the three of us, we're in this together. How are we going to get through this? How are we going to get through this year? We're stuck with each other. We need to accept each other. That I think uh, helps a lot. When I I let them pick their own partners, it's amazing to see that kids want to help kids. Yeah. That's awesome. That they're actively choosing to help their neighbor or their friend or their classmate. Right that just shows that your classroom is a good place to be, that they are being supportive of one another and, and that all of, the, all of the efforts you're making on their behalf are paying off. I think that also that I love my job. Um, they know that. Mm-hmm. And that makes them happy to know that I like my job. Some days I fake it because I'm having a tough morning, maybe something personal or I'm not feeling well, but I fake it because... I really do love my job and they know that. So they love to be there and them loving to be there makes me love my job more. So just having that positive attitude, I kind of thought that by this point in my career, I'd be like crotchety, you know, jaded maybe 17 years. Why are you getting into education? You kids. No, I love teaching. I love my job. That makes a huge difference. That's awesome. And just being mindful of time. Is there anything else that you feel is essential to ADHD in the classroom that you'd like to leave us with? Explicit directions, smashing the task, going slow. Yeah, that's great. Right where we started too. So that's it. (laughs) Yep. Thank you very much, Stephanie. This was great. You're welcome. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, 
ADHDessentials.com and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.